Ah, terrific. (laughs) Well, this is my last evening with you. And I want to take this opportunity before we begin to let you know what an unbelievably wonderful opportunity it has been. Thank you very, very much. You know, so often you go into a conference like this and you go to give, but you end up getting. And your warmth, your graciousness, your eagerness to get to know God, your open Bibles, and your desire to walk with Jesus refreshes my soul. And I, I thank you for ministering to me. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let's turn in it and see what God has to say to us tonight. The last chapter of Paul's last will and testament to his beloved buddy in the faith. You know, I figure they've named the King James properly because by now, most of you here have repented and gotten King James. (laughs) So the modern translation corner probably won't have much business tonight. And we've all reverted to the original language and uh, been able to discern the Word of God in its pure, unadulterated, untampered form. Huh? I probably should add the word archaic. <laughs> Thank you. I'll do it. <laughs> okay. Listen in whatever translation you've got while I read out of the translation I have in front of me. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left to Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou aware also for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. 
And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Prudence, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts thrill when we see you at work. What you've done in Gretchen's life and people like her. All up and down the face of this country and across the face of the world. We're so grateful that the Spirit of God is working in people's lives to will and to do of your good pleasure. And so, Lord, it's with a a spirit of expectation that we ask that you'd work in our hearts tonight to do your will, to fulfill your goals, to accomplish all that is on your heart in and through us. Lord, we view ourselves as channels, vessels, we hope, fit for the Master's use. So we pray that you cleanse from our lives every extraneous thought, everything that would grieve you and bring us captives to your feet. And there feed us changes that from one degree of glory to the next we may find ourselves conformed into the image of the incomparable Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it's a rich book. It's been fun to study. Since we took off last night and went our own ways, let's review for a moment where we are. In Paul's letter to his son, in chapter 1, he says, Timothy, I want you to remember. Remember your heritage, your endowments, and Onesiphorus. In chapter 2, he talked about commitment. Commitment to a vision, to Christ, to truth to the changing of your character. Chapter 3 dealt with that great ingredient in the life of discipleship, learning. Learning from bad examples, learning from good examples, and most important of all, learning from the Scriptures. And now in chapter 4, he caps it all off with the admonition to be diligent. In verses 1 through 5, diligence in fulfilling the ministry. In verses 6 through 8, diligence in keeping the faith. And finally, in verses 9 through 22, diligence in contending with apostasy. 1 through 5, diligence in fulfilling the ministry. Let's take a note at verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead, at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now I want you to notice here that he charges him. I charge thee therefore. And the basis of the charge is the sure judgment of God. Paul says you can count on it. Just on the other side of death stands the judgment of God. 
It is appointed unto men once to die, but after that, the judgment. And so the basis of the charge is the fact that we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one of us may receive the things that we have done according to our own works, whether they be good or whether they be bad. Now, the substance of the charge is to be faithful to the word. I charge thee on the basis of the judgment, preach the word. Now, this is simply the capstone or the, or the, or the conclusion of a, of a whole series of admonitions that he's given up in chapter 3, beginning with verse 14, when we talked, you remember last time we were together, on learning from the scriptures. So let's go back up and take a look at them again to kind of catch the flavor of where Paul is going. He says in verse 14, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Continue in these things. Here we see the importance of the application of the word. Verse 15, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, we see the power of the word. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In verse 16, we see the divine origin of the word. It is given by inspiration of God. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In verse 17, we see the purpose of the word, to equip you for every work considered good in the sight of God. Now, on the basis of this, I charge you, knowing full well that you'll give account before the living God, preach that word. Knowing of its application, knowing of its power, knowing of its divine origin, knowing of its purpose, preach it. Preach that word. That's the charge. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Why? Well, he says in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teaching, teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. Now, I want you to notice here in verses 3 and 4 that the hearers shape the teachers not vice versa. So often we hear it the other way around. The teacher leads the people astray. But here, the teachers are chosen on the basis of their ability to tell the hearers what they want to hear. It is the hearers that shape the teachers. It's the law of supply and demand. The demand creates the supply. Now, the people gather around them teachers who are willing to confirm them in their own prejudices. Now, I've read that and I thought to myself, you know, that's strange. Huh. Then the more I thought about it, the more it dawned on me, that's just exactly the way it is today. That's exactly the way it is. And with a plethora of churches, how easy it is to practice that. See, so you go over to this little church and you listen. You don't like what he says. So you leave him, go over to this church over here. We shop around and we listen to this guy. We don't like him either, so we go over here and 
But I mean, we steps on our toes, and we don't care for that a little too much. Oh, this guy meddles too much and preaches in areas we don't particularly like, so we, oh, this guy tells us what we want to hear. He kind of makes us feel good, blesses us, encourages our black hearts, and we continue to go. These are the individuals who enjoy hearing a good teacher, but they have no intention of allowing that teacher to shape the direction of their lives. Now you say, well, well, that's terrible. And that ought not to be. Well, let me ask you, very frankly, on what basis do you decide what church you attend? When you go to church, do you evaluate the message on the basis of the change that takes place in your life as a result? Or let me put it another way. When you go to church, when you hear the preaching of the Word, Sunday after Sunday is the primary motivating factor in your life as you head to that sanctuary on Sunday morning, Lord, change my life. Or do you evaluate your pastor on the basis of his willingness to tell you something that you did not ever hear before, or if he tells you something you've heard of before, at least it's entertaining. For the average evangelical Christian, if the pastor cannot meet one of those two criteria, we're gone. I mean, flat gone. But you, Timothy, you're to be different. You don't preach to make them feel good. You preach so that they'll have the privilege of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. Don't shape your message on the basis of what they want to hear. Shape it rather on the basis of what they need to hear. And that's what he's saying in verse 5. Watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Now I want to grab a hold of that phrase, do the work of an evangelist. Now, it seems to me, that the cutting edge of any ministry has got to be evangelism. See, make full proof of thy ministry. Yet do that by doing the work of an evangelist. Now, it's not evangelism to the exclusion of everything else. And I'm not trying to say evangelism is here and everything else is over here. I'm simply suggesting to you this evening that if you have all other of the ingredients going in your fellowship, but you're lacking evangelism... You have a fellowship that lacks morale, esprit de corps. The fizz has gone out of the soda pot. But you show me a fellowship that is aggressive in evangelism and seeing men and women come to Jesus Christ. And they may be deficient in a whole bunch of other areas, but I'll show you a fellowship that is on the move. Evangelism is not the only ingredient, but it certainly is an indispensable ingredient. The job of populating heaven and depopulating hell is what the ministry is all about. Do the work of an evangelist. And so I charge you, as Paul charged Timothy, 
on the authority of the Word of God itself, do the work of an evangelist. Now, I'd like to suggest to you this evening that evangelism begins by becoming the friend of publicans and sinners. And so I ask you tonight, Jesus was the friend of publicans and sinners. Are you? We're to emulate Jesus. Are you the friend of publicans and sinners? I'm not asking you tonight, how many non-Christians do you know? My question to you, rather, is this. How many non-Christians consider you to be their friend? Let me ask that again. How many non-Christians consider you to be their friend? And my beloved friends in Christ Jesus, it is so easy for us to retreat to our Christian ghetto that we don't associate with the people who need us the most. I'll tell you a story about a, a young couple, friends of ours, known them for a long, long time. They come out of a town, I won't tell you where or, or what their names are, but they come out of a town fairly small, about the size of Colorado Springs, born and raised in that town. When they got to successful in business, knew just buckets and buckets of people in the city, Jesus led them to Christ, led them to himself. Their lives were transformed and changed. And they lived a brand new life in Christ in the midst of a whole group of relationships, most of whom did not know Christ. Then one day they moved to a very large city. And I visited them there about a year after they had moved there. And we were chatting one day. And I said, how did you like it in, in X city here? And they said, oh, we really love it. Really love it. Well, man, I'm glad to hear that. As a matter of fact, they said we like it a lot better than the city in which we lived. And that kind of sounded strange because, you know, that doesn't happen all that often. And I said, well, tell me about that. Why, why do you like the city so much? Well, they said, you know, we, we've gathered around us a bunch of Christian friends and we just don't feel the pressure here that we felt in that small town. And I knew exactly what they were saying. Because you see what had happened was when they had moved to the large city, they sought out wonderful, fine, evangelical friends and they gathered into that warm, comfortable cocoon and lived there in joy. Back in the town from which they came, they were constantly forced into contact with people whose value system was different than theirs a value system that they had embraced a few years earlier, but now for the sake of the gospel had renounced. And they felt uncomfortable. And every time they were invited to these friends' home, friends that they had known since early days in school, they felt embarrassed, they felt awkward, and they felt uncomfortable. And that is the price of being the friend of the publican and the sinner. And that is the reason why the average Christian will have no part of it. But the admonition of the scriptures is break out of that cocoon and engage yourself in that portion of our society that desperately needs to hear the good news. Make full proof of your ministry. It begins by doing the work of an evangelist. So, Timothy, 
Be diligent in fulfilling your ministry. Now the second admonition on diligence is diligence in keeping the faith. Verses 6 through 8. He says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now there are two words in this verse that are pregnant in meaning. Just great words. And I want to call them to your attention. They give you an idea of how Paul viewed death. The first is offered. He says, I am now ready to be offered. Now that word is the same word that they use in the Old Testament concerning burnt offerings and drink offerings. It's, it's like you take and you pour out an offering unto God. I am now ready to be offered. In Paul's mind, the Romans were not about to take his life. God and God alone shapes Paul's destiny. Death for Paul was his last act of worship. It was the fulfillment of what he had done all of his life. Namely, offered himself unto God. Now the second word is equally exciting, and that's the word departed. I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now that word departed is the same word that they used in his day for breaking camp. When the soldiers were out in bivouac, and it was time to pull down the tent and fold it up and put it on the pack and move on to another place, that's the word he uses here. That's the word for departure here. In Paul's mind, death was not the end. Death was simply a matter of pulling down the tent and breaking camp. That's all. It was moving on to better ground. I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And notice what he says next. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day. Isn't that extraordinary that Paul could say that with that kind of confidence? He says, I know I'm ready to die. They've already pronounced the sentence. I'm writing here my last epistle. And I know what's going to happen. The time of my departure is at hand, but it doesn't scare me. I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. And I know that just on the other side of death, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous God, is going to prepare for me. And that's the reason why I view death as simply the breaking of camp. Now that is extraordinary that a man facing that kind of a situation can say those words with such assurance and confidence. But notice what he says. He says in verse 8, he says, that's not just for me. He says, but for you also. You can feel the same way about it as I do. If you love his appearing. <laughs> you see, it's possible for an individual to know that death is not the end. It is possible for an individual to look God the Father in the face and say, Father, I am ready for breaking camp. It's possible to do that. And that comes when an individual enters into a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I want to pause just for a moment and discuss that with you. Because I've learned in the number of times that I've had the privilege of speaking that in an audience this size, there's inevitably a few people 
who have yet to make the wonderful discovery of knowing Jesus Christ personally. You see, my friend, it is possible for an individual to date or to court Jesus Christ for years and never marry him, just like it's possible for a guy and a girl to date for years and never get married. You learn a lot about him. You understand all about it. You get all the language down. You can even memorize some of the verses out of the Bible. But that doesn't make you married. Just like you can send flowers to your best girlfriend, you can date her, you can get to know her, you can get to know her parents, you can know everything about her, but that doesn't make you husband and wife, does it? What happens is when you covenant together to become one. Now, you know what that's like in the marriage relationship because I'm speaking mostly to married folks here tonight. And those of you who are not married certainly know what what it takes to get involved that way. But so also in the Christian life. That marriage relationship takes place when an individual opens his life up and invites Jesus Christ to come in. And you just open your heart and you say, Lord, I'd like you to come in and take up residence. I'd like you to change me from the inside out. Gretchen was talking to us about that tonight, wasn't she? Telling us how that had happened to her. And I'm sure you've heard that from other people. But that can become yours. Nobody can do it for you. You've got to do it on your own. And you simply do it by declaring spiritual bankruptcy, to use a businessman's term. By coming to God and saying, Lord, I'd like you to enter into my life And teach me how to live life as it was meant to be lived. And I want you to know, if you'll do that, God will embark you on an adventure the likes of which has never passed your mind. Unbelievable, the thrill and the excitement in store for you. So I'm going to do something I've never done before in an audience. What I'd like to do right now is I'd like to pause and I'd like to pray with you. And if you've never made that decision, I want you to pray with me. Then we'll pick it up and move right on through Timothy. Okay, we're not going to quit. Don't fold your Bibles up. But if you have never made this decision, if you have never invited Jesus Christ into your life, then right now, I'd like you to pray that with me. I'd like all of us to pray together. But for those of you who have never invited Christ into your heart, let me invite you in the quietness of your own heart, just to pray the prayer that I pray. And if you meet it in sincerity, God will answer you and change you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for sending Jesus Christ. I recognize that I need him. I recognize that my life is incomplete without him. Father, I've sinned. I'm unworthy of your love. But I accept your love. And I thank you for it. Right now, I open my heart and invite Jesus Christ to come in. Enter into my life, Savior. Change me. Make me into the kind of person that I know I ought to be but can never become apart from you. 
I thank you for your willingness to do this. And I want to tell you that I love you. Amen. Now, I'm not going to ask you to tell me if you've made that decision, but I want to ask you to do this. If you have done that, I'd like you to get a hold of your discussion group leader and to tell him or her that you've made that commitment. You know, sharing it with that individual will be an exciting thing all of its own. And your discussion group leader will have some real neat suggestions on how to develop that relationship with Christ. So, let's go on. Let's talk about verses 9 through 22, diligence in contending with apostasy. Now, the first night we were together, we briefly went over these. Let's review them again. Verse 10, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and is departed unto Thessalonica. Verse 11, only Luke is with me. Mark made a comeback. You know, he flamed out of Perga on the first missionary journey, made a comeback here. He's profitable for the ministry. Alexander the coppersmith in verse 14 did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his work. I can't read that verse without shuddering. My friend, if there's one thing you never want to pray, it's that one. Lord, reward me according to my works. Verse 16. At my first answer, no man stood with me. Everybody forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. Now, why the review? Well, I believe the review is here to show the cost. The price is high. Some people make it. Many do not. Now, the issue here is not salvation. The issue here is finishing the race of life well. That's the issue. And some finish it well, and some not so well. And I guess, really, the thing that's on my heart for my own life is to be a finisher. And I commend that to you. And if you're going to be a finisher in the Christian life, it's going to take some discipline, some discipleship, some diligence in contending with that whole host of forces that are constantly trying to pull you down. Now, it's tough to stand alone, and there will be times when God calls on you to stand alone. But notice Paul's response. I'm going to read verse 16, 17. I want you you to kind of pick up the the flavor, the tempo of, of how Paul expresses it here. And my first answer, no man stood with me. Everybody forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and shall preserve me to his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He begins with a note of dejection and despondency, and he ends up with a doxology. Isn't that terrific? Now, the lesson here is pointed. Simply that when you find yourself abandoned and you're all alone, it affords you a unique opportunity to trust God. And Paul says, 
Nobody else was around. You were the only one, Father, and you came through loud and clear. And he sung a doxology as a result. Now I'm reminded of old David over that Ziklag. Do you remember David at Ziklag? You have to know your Old Testament. Remember that? But Ziklag was an encampment among the Philistines. David had been living there in exile, and he got this harebrained idea of going to help the Philistine army. So the Philistine army, and praise God that God thwarted that plan, said, no, you can't go with it. So David and all of his many men turned back to Ziklag. How would you like to have that for your hometown? Ziklag, Iowa, huh? <laughs> so David returns to Ziklag. Only when he gets back, he finds out that the Amalekites had beat him there, had destroyed the camp, taken everything of value with them, including their kids and their wives. Well, you can imagine how that, that passed over as far as the mighty men were concerned. You know, that went over like a ham sandwich in a synagogue. And they were really angry. And they, in essence, if you don't mind my using the vernacular, they said, David, you meathead, what the fat did you let this happen for? You're our leader. And they got mad. And the more they thought about it, and the more they could just imagine in their mind's eye what those Amalekites were doing to their wives and kids, the more they wanted to kill David. So they started feeling those stones in their hands and looking at David. And in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 30, it says, But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Isn't that great? That's what happened to, to Paul right here. When he was all alone and the dark clouds of despair hung over his head, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Now, my friend, the reason I mention this to you is those dark clouds are coming your way. I don't know when they're going to arrive. I don't know what form they're going to take. But you can count on it. And when they do, just remember David at Ziklag and Paul in his letter to Timothy. And encourage yourself in the Lord your God. Now, finally, I'd like you to look at verse 22. He said, The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Interesting. He ends with grace. Grace be with you. So be it. Turn with me to the first chapter. First Timothy, chapter, or Second Timothy, chapter 1. Verse 2. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 1. <coughs> Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul begins with grace, he continues with grace, and he ends with grace. Grace is Paul's last word to Timothy. This is the charge, Timothy. I want you to remember, I want you to be committed, I want you to learn, and I want you to be diligent. And there's the, only, the only way you're going to pull it off is by leaning on the grace of God. So if this seems like a, a mammoth, gargantuan task to you, it simply affords you an opportunity to trust the all-sufficient grace of God. Be God's man. Be God's woman. It'll take a large portion of grace. But God's got it there waiting for you.
be diligent for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you again for preserving this last will and testament of Timothy, or of Paul to Timothy, to us here in 1978. Lord, I pray again, Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, we, we're thankful for what you've taught us. Now the thing we're excited about is the difference it's going to make in how we live. We're frail, we're feeble, we falter, we fall. But Lord, we trust your grace. We pray that it would be sufficient to help us become the kind of men and women that Paul challenges Timothy to be here in this epistle. If you'll help us in this great and noble task, to the best of our ability, we'll be careful to give you the honor and glory. We recognize that it is yours and yours alone in Jesus our Christ. Amen.